At the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have a really great pleasure to have with me, not only a collaborator, but someone who I now regard as one of my friends in the community. And it's Lara Barbio. Welcome, Lara. Hi, Syra. Thanks for having me, friend. No problem. Uh, just to give people an idea of where Lara is coming from, Lara is a professor of medicine and the associate director of research for the Health Professions Education Graduate Degree Program at the university, sorry, I knew I was going to make a mistake. Anyway, and the <laughs> Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. Okay, so Lara, I'm going to start with something you did to me. I hope you don't mind me doing back to you. Of course. We, have, we met a few times before. We actually sat down at a dinner to have a conversation. And one thing that I remember very vividly was that instead of asking about my research, which is kind of the easier way of, getting to know another person, you actually asked me about how, what is life in Colombia. You asked mm -hmm. me about myself and I was, oh, that's, that's really cool. So my question to you is, can you tell us about yourself without telling us about your research? Who's Lara Barkage? Oh, good question, Syrah. Um, yeah, uh, I always ask people about who they are because I care more about you than I do about the work. I just do. Um, people matter more in my mind. So how can I tell you about me without telling you about my work? It's really, um, it's kind of straightforward and, and not straightforward. So I'm originally from Canada uh, and my Canadian status is very deeply ingrained. I only left uh, Canada when I was in my thirties, um, late twenties, early thirties. I also don't really do what numbers really well. So it's all just take any number I give you, just put the word ish after it. Um, so um, I grew up in uh, Northern Ontario and I grew up in Northern Ontario before there was medical schools there. And before, um, it was, it was a really blue collar mining town. And, uh, one of the things I knew I had to do, uh, was to stretch my, stretch my wings and, and, and move out. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that I think kind of underpins a lot of who I am and what I do, this idea that this box that I find myself sitting in doesn't fit or the coat that I'm trying to put on is too tight. That, that feeling, um, yeah. I I'm forever trying to get, avoid that feeling. So I knew that I knew that Sudbury wasn't going to be the place where I was going to be able to, to be the person I wanted to be. So I went to uh, Southern Ontario for grad school. And, uh, during that work, I met my, I met my now husband. Uh, and so he and I moved to Sweden cause you know, he was an exchange student and that oh. happened. Yeah. So <laughs> I lived in Sweden for three years. Oh, what? <laughs> uh, unbelievably fun, unbelievably difficult. Um, I'm, I'm an immigrant. Uh, I was an immigrant in Sweden. I'm an immigrant down here in the U S where I work now. And it is one of the hardest roles to hold. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a thing. And, uh, if, if you're, if you ever, as somebody who understands the immigration process and what that means, not just to go through the paperwork, but what that does to you as a person, it's different. Right. And so, uh, Sweden, I didn't speak the language or anything. So it was one of those experiences, but I, I learned Swedish enough to 
basically get myself in trouble and not enough to get myself out of trouble. Um, so we lived there for three years. I started doing my PhD while I was living in Sweden because I was academically bored. Um, I was bored. I was intellectually bored. I'd like, what am I doing? And I don't recommend anybody do a PhD for that reason. But um, through a series of circumstances, we ended up moving back to Canada, finishing my PhD in Canada. And uh, I almost quit. I almost quit my PhD. I was literally two heartbeats away from saying we're done because I was doing my PhD in English in the field of English. And then, and I think it's a great field. I, I was focusing on, on questions of rhetoric and of persuasion and how different genres, different kinds of communication do things. But I was looking around at all my, all my classmates and somebody was doing like the rhetoric of cereal boxes and somebody else was doing, you know, the visual poetry of, was it like Caribbean women or something like that, which is great. But I had nothing for like, I was like, I can't do this. This is so it was, it was a coat that didn't fit. I couldn't, I couldn't wear that. I just, I couldn't. Um, and so through a series of, of conversations and interactions, I ended up meeting Lorelai Lingard, going to the Wilson Center. Uh, they invited me to stay for three days and I ended up staying for three years, but that's when everything changed. And then suddenly, um, not only was I uh, a, a wife and uh, you know a, a person with personal interest, but then suddenly I, I had visions of having a real career, and things just shifted. So uh, I think you can say that if if you want to get to know me without talking about my research, I'm somebody who's very aware of when the the, the coat doesn't fit. I'm I'm always trying to not get be in that situation for too long. I'm an immigrant. I'm a mother. Uh, <laughs> yeah and that and I and I have a creative streak in my backbone so I like to be creative every now and then I want to pick uh, on two pieces in there one of them like you said you're very aware of when the code doesn't fit and yet you came for three days to the Wilson Center and stayed for three years what was the memorable experience that made you realize ah, maybe this is a place to stay longer than three days I'm so glad you asked that Sarah because um I have for years been waiting for an opportunity to say thank you to somebody in a very public forum. So I'm going to do it now. Um, so Lorelai Lingard invited me to come to the Wilson Center, essentially to come and see if there was something in the, in the community there that would be worth studying. So I didn't quit my PhD, right? So my, my thesis topic, she's like, well, you know, let's go thesis shopping and see if there's something. As only Lorelai could say, right, go thesis shopping. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> But uh, so I owe a debt of gratitude to that woman that I can never repay. Like I just can never repay the generosity and uh, the time and the idea that there was a place for somebody like me who was having this degree in English, but didn't want to be in English. Like I was the one who watched Moby Dick. I didn't read the book. Like, you know, that's a bad English PhD. But anyway, um, so I owe a debt of gratitude to her. Uh, the other person is Brian Hodges. Well, one of the turning moments what, for me during that visit, those, those first three days, is that um, Lorelai brought me over to bring to meet Brian. He was uh, the head of the Wilson Center at that point. And he and I had a very short, it must have been no more than 10, 15 minute conversation. And at the end of that conversation, uh, I'll just never forget that he looked at me and he said, you're going to do something with this. And that was the first time quite frankly, I, it may very well have been the first time ever that I wasn't this underdog in a coat that didn't fit and, you know, trying to find my way. And somebody said, you can do this. You're going to, this is something you got. 
And I was like, oh my God, I could like, like I, I literally became addicted to that feeling of, okay, somebody thinks I can do this. So this is a place where I might fit. You know, there's one other person I have to add uh, a special thank you and, and um, recognition for. Glenn Regeer has been one of those people who consistently across my career has not only supported me and opened doors, but always been so generous with his time. I, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today if it hadn't been for Glenn. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing. Didn't know about that, that story. Now back to Sweden. Sure. So I was going to ask you, what was this move from Sudbury to Toronto to Ottawa to Washington? But I, I missed the Sweden part. So now you brought your husband here. Yeah. Now he's the one with the immigrant hat. So yeah. how did that ended up working for the two of you and all the moves that you have done so far geographically? Yeah, geographically, he and I have been kind of nomads. Um, one of the things that's, you know, a credit to North America in my heart is that in both Canada and the US are nations that understand that like, they're built on immigration. So um, he, when I said, uh, <laughs> he asked, when, when he asked me when we were living in Waterloo and he was an exchange student and I was basically, like I was doing my PhD at the University of Waterloo and, or my master's degree at that point, I'm sorry. And he's like, so I have to go home are you coming? And I'm like, okay, well, if that's as romantic as it's going to get, then sure. <laughs> Fine. He's an engineer. What do you do with that? Okay. And then, but then after a few years of living in Sweden, I, I knew I couldn't stay. I, it was time for me to, the coat didn't fit. I, I, I don't fit. It wasn't a place where I was going to be able to be me. Uh, and so I turned to him like, I have to go home. Are you coming? And he was like, of course I am. And it's so much easier to be an immigrant in North America uh, because we understand immigrants. A lot of us are immigrants. So um, I think his transition across as we've lived in both Canada and the U S I think it's been a bit easier for, for him, not because of any in inherent difference between the two of us. It's just the countries have different predispositions towards immigration. And what about those moves? Because I understand that it was more related also in relation to your husband's job. That yeah. you have to yeah. So my husband, uh, my husband's a professor in mechanical engineering. He's actually a rocket scientist. That's the, the simplest way of explaining it. Um, but if you talk to him, you'll understand that rocket science isn't rocket science. Like it's, they're all like little, they focus very deeply on specific things and he can't find the milk in the fridge. So, you know, take it for what it is. But um, the um, it's very hard. He had, he received, I was working at the university of Ottawa. I had just accepted a position there and then he received a postdoc offer to work at Stanford at their center for, uh, for one of their centers of research. And so we found ourselves in a situation where we both had really great jobs that we were just about to start and they weren't in the same city. So we did that thing where you live in two different cities on, uh, that didn't work for very long and it didn't work very well. Um, it wasn't, it, that, that didn't fit. So um, we did what any natural human being would do. And we decided, okay, well, let's start our family now. Cause you know, why wouldn't you? But um, we were lucky that we could, and we were lucky because I was working for a Canadian university. And so I got a Canadian maternity leave of 12 months, um, which just makes all the difference as uh, a woman uh, working in academia and a, somebody who wants to be a really engaged mom. Uh, those 12 months were exceedingly precious. But because I had those 12 months, I could leave 
So we moved out of Canada and we lived in California and I can highly recommend California as a place for maternity leave. If anybody out there is thinking about where they want to do it, I can, you know, we had a great time in Palo Alto, California. It was gorgeous. So um, we did that. And then uh, I went back to Ottawa. He followed me. Then we had our second child did that again, did the California thing. And then after that, we really came to realize that uh, we needed two jobs in one city. That was a really hard process. I think that's one of the things that we don't necessarily recognize for a lot of women academics um, is that there's this really intense pull between different social roles. Um, and you have to be pretty confident in yourself to stand up and say, I, 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 I'm going to be a good mother, but that doesn't mean my career comes second to everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. Unfortunately, my husband didn't put me in that position to have to, to say it. He was like, no, we're going to find two jobs. Where we're both going to be successful which then brought us to Maryland. So he's at the University of uh, Maryland and I'm at USU. And yeah, so we we followed each other and we made sure that we were both priorities. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Like on that topic of priorities and expectations, I'm curious to pick your brain on what are those expectations that you had about making a career as a researcher that you have found differ from reality? Oh, great question, Syra. I really thought I was going to be one of those people who had a program of research. You know, those, you know, people who can have, you know, this is my world and this is what I do. Uh, I thought, yeah, I, I'll do that. And uh, no, that, that's, it's not who I am. Apparently that's not my thing. I don't have one topic that I say is mine. I have a way of thinking that I just bring to different topics. So I didn't, it, that did not turn out the way I thought it would. Mm-hmm. Um, along with that, what has been the main challenges that you have faced in trying to create a career as a researcher yet not having like a detailed folk mm-hmm. research program? Yeah, what's difficult? Um, I think that, I think some of the challenges, so it's interesting that you ask a really good question, Syrah, because it, it's, it's not a straightforward answer. Some of the challenges in being a good researcher are the ability to truly believe in what you're doing and not just to know that you have the skill set, but that what you're doing is worthy and important and valuable. Um, and sometimes that can be the hardest thing. And for me, you know, I didn't grow up in a context where, uh, you know, I grew up in the North and it was a very traditional context and there was a role for women and, you know, there was a way I was supposed to, you know, I was not supposed to go here for university, whatever. But anyway, so that confidence was something I hadn't anticipated that I was going to need to develop at a very fundamental level that I had what it takes to, to be successful. And that's one of the things that I think for, for research orientation, you know, I think I've developed it and I continue to develop it over time, but the confidence to be, this is what I do that, that was hard. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, but on the flip side, uh, I found when, when people had the courage to do something different or become someone different from the expected, then it also comes with also unexpected moments. And I was wondering about what will be one or two unexpected but very gratifying moments of your career so far? Unexpected but gratifying moments. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good question. Give me a minute. Um, unexpected but gratifying. We're going to have to come back to that one, I think. Okay. I need a minute. Sorry, dear. 
No problem. We, we can we can move on. Let's talk about successes then. How do you celebrate okay. successes? How do I celebrate successes? Yeah. Oh, I do them all the time. I want to yeah, know how you celebrate. <laughs> yeah, successes don't come often enough, right? So you got to party for each of them. Um, I um, it, it depends on the scope of successes. Um, I have a, a, a small tradition in my family that when things go really right for any of us, uh, we have um, we have a party at home. So when my son does, uh, you know, when the the work that he has engaged in enables him to walk away from a test and he feels he did well, we don't celebrate the score. So we have the party before they get a score. We have a party where it's like, you know, what, you did all that work. That's awesome. It's like, you know, what do you want to do? And so if it's the boys, we play video games because, you know, they're of that age. Um, but uh, I, we throw parties, we throw little parties at our house all the time for all the little things that just happen because yeah there's not enough reason especially during COVID right we need to celebrate everything we've got this is oh for sure yeah. yeah and one of the things that have struck me and maybe this is this is coming from your way of celebrating is that you're very optimistic and uh, now that we're collaborating more I have noticed that you have you're very intentional in setting a positive and relaxed mood in every meeting and I was wondering where does it come from when did you learn that Um, trial and error in the sense that the other option doesn't fit me. Um, when people have very formal structures, I get really uncomfortable because, um, you know, when you go to a fancy restaurant and the, the cutlery is laid out in a, in a pattern that means something, right? Like there's an order here and you're supposed to know the secret language of the cutlery. <laughs> I have no clue what that secret language is like no clue. And I know you're supposed to start out and work in, but sometimes, you know, you're eating your salad and you want to use a spoon heaven forbid. Right. So I, when it comes to formal structures, I, I, I don't deal with them. Well, I, I don't speak that language. It was never part of, of who I was or, or, or that. The other thing is, is that, um, I really do feel that one of the most, there, there is a lot of things in life you can't control, right? I can't control who reads my paper and, and thinks it's a good idea or thinks I'm ridiculous. Um, I can't control, um, I can't control the way my kids are going to grow up. I, you know, I'll, I can give them all the advice, you know, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make it drink, right? You can just say, honey, don't play with, you know, don't play with matches. Don't put the pizza in the oven and then go play PS4 and forget that it's in there and start a fire, right? You can tell them not to do it, but you know, you don't have, you don't have control over that. So one of the things that I do think, you know, it might be a bit trite, but I, you have control over how you make people feel. Like when you're engaging with people, my hope is to always create a situation where people feel comfortable and feel valuable and feel accepted for exactly who they are. Um, that's the kind of space that I can work best in. And I hope that having people feel that way makes it easy for them to be who they are to be successful in, in, in their skin. That's, if we can do that, then if I can do that, then I'm, I'm a happy woman. Right. And I have been in, on the receiving end and it makes things so much easier in terms of letting loose and share ideas and not being afraid of making a mistake, which is, which is my next point. Yeah. You recently did a... Um, I think it was a, it's a keynote, like it was a co-keynote about mm -hmm. failure. And you're the first person that I'm going to ask this question because I think you're comfortable with the war. Yeah. <laughs> what has been the failure that you have felt the most proud of? Oh, yeah. So the failure I'm most proud of 
is um, <laughs> I tried to be a quantitative researcher at one point. I, oh yeah, really back when the earth was young in the early days of my career in Ottawa, I really felt that um, I didn't understand. I wasn't doing research that would get published because it wasn't valued at the time. Like qualitative research back then was making inroads, but it wasn't where it is now. So I was like, oh my God, I have to learn to do a survey. I have to learn to, you know, I have to learn what a P value is. Um, I even took a course uh, that Stan Hamstra, he's not going to remember this, <laughs> but I'll tell him. Um, uh, he taught a course that was basically like introduction to statistics. And um, he, he was talking away, Syrah, I had no clue what was going on, right? They were talking about deltas and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know what's happening. So I thought, you know, ask for a clarification question. And it's going to be okay. So I put up my hand and I asked Stan Hamster what N stood for when you said your N was five. What does N stand for? And he looked at me like I had seven heads. Like it, it was such an epic and it was public. There were people in that room I knew. It was awful. And then, you know, but after that, I was like, I give up. I, I, fa- I, I, I fail. As, I fail at, at the quantitative side of this. And thank God I did. Could you imagine how hard it would be to, for me to do what I who that coat would not have that jet that that would not have fit me it would not have fit yeah what else did you learn because i imagine just putting yourself through that experience might let you at least something good <laughs> honestly you know so many things that that happen in our career come from those un, you know unexpected happy accidents to borrow from bob ross right um from that experience i came away understanding okay so i'm not a quantitative researcher but i want the quantitative audience to understand who i am and value what i do and so what i need to do then is figure out how they think because i can't talk to that audience if i don't understand how they think and that's what got me into the, the philosophies of science work because i literally had to sit down and say the you know the idea that there's one answer was completely foreign to me like i had no clue where that was. So I, I had to get into the philosophies of science. And because I did that, that enabled me to really understand the different people in our community and where they're coming from. And, you know, I, I, I really value pluralities. I, I value the many different ways of thinking. So it made me understand and appreciate where they're coming from. And it also helped me to understand how I needed to explain what I do in a way that they could wrap their, their arms around. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. I never connected that with, because I was going to ask you, how did you land into being interested in this philosophy of science? It came yeah. from that. Oh, yeah. It came from needing to, you know, in rhetoric will tell you that you, in part of your rhetorical context, if you're going to be an effective writer, you have to understand the context you're writing in, the audience. And, uh, anyway, audience is part of that context. If you're, if you're, if you want to be effective as a communicator and you're talking Greek to a Latin audience, it's not going to fly. So I needed to understand where, where, where are, I needed to understand where medical education was and what they valued. Cause I, I didn't know what it, I still don't know what N stands for. I think it's number, right? I feel that that's a good reason. Yeah. That's good. But, right. Okay. I don't think he ever answered. Yeah. Oh, he never answered. Okay. Um, <laughs> listeners, please send me a text. <laughs> what N stands for. It's just not a Twitter chat. <laughs> So it sounds to me that you have gone through many different experiences just because you are you have allowed yourself to face different yeah different experiences embrace being different as well. 
what has been throughout your career, what do you think has been the turning point of your experience that have given you the most memorable lessons? Can be a place, can be a person. Mm. There have been many turning points. Uh, I think the, the one that I will, the one that I will turn to is a person, Joanna Bates, bless that woman. Um, I, I met Joanna when I was a place in my career where I really didn't know what I was going to do. Cause I felt like I was floundering. I felt like oh, I do some stuff over here on interprofessional. I do some stuff over here. And you know, this whole idea that I'm supposed to have a box that I fit in and this is my territory and I don't have a territory. And then I, you know, I'm going to, I fail. And Joanna was one of those people that was a turning moment, a turning point for me because she completely, I don't know if you ever had the, the, the joy of, of, of having been mentored by Joanna. So she that loved that woman. She took me every time we met, we went for a restaurant, we went somewhere for dinner and we always went somewhere for dinner. That was like long, like there would be several courses and bottles of wine. And like this, these were like long sessions and it was, you know, we would talk about her and we would talk about, like we talked about everything. It was everything. But one of the, that was a turning point for me because she was the first person who asked me, why do you need to fit? Why do you need to have a territory that's just yours? And I was like, well, because everybody has territory that's theirs and that's what academics do. And oh my God, she's like, what if your territory is enabling everybody in their territories? And I could literally feel myself start to exhale. So I was like, oh yeah, why, why don't I just take that idea of if I really care about people more than I do outcomes, which I do, then why do I need a territory? Why don't I support other people in their territory and help, you know, show them the way I think. And maybe that helps. And there we go. And how has it shaped your approach to mentorship? Because I imagine it allows you to do something different with your people. Yeah. That's why I ask about, you know, tell me about you. One of the things I do with uh, all of the, my graduate students and my mentor mentees is I, I, I start by asking them, you know, what do you care about? What is this for you? Like, why is this your career? Is this something that you're really passionate about? Or, you know, some topics people don't pick because, you know, they have an intellectual interest. They, some people pick topics because you know, that's deeply personal. And so I can't be really supportive of unless I understand that deeply personal space. And that also means that I have to be brave enough to share mine deeply personal spaces. So um, <laughs> I really appreciated your introduction, Syra, because if I work with somebody, it's because I can see us being friends. Because I only work with friends. I don't, I don't do collaborators who are at an arm's length. I, I, yes, you can. But at the end of the day, I want to be able to go for dinner and have a long conversation about the work, sure, but about life and you and Let's just be genuine and, and take care of each other a little bit and make sure that you're good. And if you're good, great. And if you're not good, how can I help? Like that's, that's the richness of, of, of my career. Yeah. And, and that's so good to see. And one thing that I have to ask you in relation to that too, like how is it kind of using that mentality or mindset with people in the military? Maybe oh, because I have these ideas of they are a very particular audience. Do you have interesting stories to tell? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I can tell you that for the first year, I never opened a door by myself because somebody always opened every door. And that was weird. 
after a while, I was like, people, I got arms. I can do this. <laughs> it was lovely. It was gallant, but it was also weird. Um, I think in the military, one of the things that I've come to realize is that I, I work in a very specific branch of the military, the, the health the health providers in, in the military um, are like health providers everywhere. There's more rank and formality. So one of the things I've come to realize is that once I have them one-on-one, then I can help them intellectually take their uniform off and then we talk. But at but when we're done, I sometimes have to give them time to put intellectually put their their uniform back on because when they go outside the room, somebody will salute them. And then they need to be in a different mind frame. So um, one of my one of my military learners has asked that um, when when she and I meet, we never meet in a building where she has a, a formal role. We always meet like there's bowling alley on campus. You know, I work on a very weird campus. It's 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 a healthcare. It's it's a it's a whole thing. Um, but there's all kinds of different buildings of different nature. So she and I will meet in really unusual. Like we'll go to the playground and talk research because she knows at the playground she can be her without her uniform and then we have the walk back for her to mentally get her uniform back on that's fascinating because i don't think outside that context we really think about the places where we talk to students it's always our office we create these differences what else have you learned from them that it might not come as straightforward for people who are kind of in the civil environment? Um, I think one of the things that I have learned from the military, a couple of things. One is, uh, you'll appreciate this, the extent to which they engage in adaptability. The, The extent to which no matter what happens, there is this confidence that I can adapt to meet it. Like, I've heard stories of terrible, horrible, awful things that happen when they're on deployment. And then in the next breath, it's not, so I sat down and cried. It is, so we picked up the things that we could use. We, we started triaging, we did this, we did that. And it's just like this idea that you can adapt to anything is, I find it very hopeful. I find it very um, reassuring. Um, and so that's something I take from, from them. The other piece is this really deep sense of camaraderie that the military has. Um, they are all in this together, like in a very deep and meaningful kind of way. And that's one of the things, there are lots of things about the military environment that don't fit for me, but at the foundational level of that camaraderie, that really fits because, you know, we're, we're friends, we're going to work together, but we're friends. We're in this together. We're both, you know, nobody's more important than anybody else in this room. That's why like my office always has like seating areas. I, I don't meet people. I try not to be behind my desk when we meet too often. I, we sit, we talk. Um, and then, yeah, that camaraderie piece, that's huge. Okay. I have two more questions and I will let you go. It's been that's okay. What are you working on or what are your next curiosity? I knew you were going to ask me this question and I stressed about this because I, you know, I I listened to you. I listened to your podcast as I'm going on my walks and I go on these long walks. You gave me an extra long walk the other day because I heard you ask this question to somebody else. I'm like, dang, she's going to ask me this question. I couldn't come up with an answer. And the reason I can't come up with an answer I've come to realize is that, um, right. One of the things I think curiosity requires for me, I don't know if it's true for others, but for me, if I'm to have that the curiosity is always there, but to engage in it, to act on it, to think on it, I need mental space. I need some, 
Like there can't be too many things on my desk. And during COVID, uh, my kids have been in this house for over 13 months now. Um, the, my husband is giving lectures today in the laundry room. Um, like it's, I, I don't have space. I, I haven't had space in 13 months to sort of think, uh, creatively. So right now I'd have to say that I'm not sure what my next curiosity is, but I can tell you that I can feel it. Like it's like an itch. There's something, I don't know if it happens to you, but there's something going on in certain situations that I can't put my finger on. And I think to myself, or when I read a certain paper or when I, you know, there's something there that I, 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 it's back there. And as soon as I have some elbow room, I'll be happy to get into that. But right now, curiosities have had to take a second place to getting through this pandemic. I think that's too, you know, that's one of the things I think a lot of, um, a lot of academics this past year, it's been hard. Um, some people have really thrived, but some people who have multiple responsibilities or different kinds of contexts, um, I think it's, it's been a hard year to, to engage in, in the space or the, you know, the luxury of being curious. And I completely appreciate your vulnerability in saying that because I imagine most, some people are going through that, but also what I'm getting from you is this message that you don't have to give up. It's what you said. Right now is not the first priority, but it hasn't fell off the list. It's there and you will come back. So it's keeping also that optimistic view that I'm not letting it go. I'm just putting up a hole and it will come back. That's very hopeful yeah. message. I appreciate that. There's a, you'll appreciate the, the, the concept of multi, multi-objective optimization, right? Don't give me that face. If you guys can see her face right now, so multi-objective <laughs> optimization is this idea that we have multiple different objectives that are, you know, so if you think of a plot diagram, I have lots of different dots on my screen and depending on the objective that I am trying to achieve, I can connect them in different ways. But if I'm trying to achieve multiple different objectives, then connecting them all together is a very difficult thing because some of, some of the things you're trying to achieve are run counter to some objectives. So one of the things I've, I've really embraced in my way of thinking about my career is that I have multiple different objectives and I can't achieve all of them at once. It's just physically impossible. So some days, some t- during some phases, I really put more emphasis and priority on supporting learners, um, mentees. Sometimes I put much more emphasis on my personal life, on my children, on my husband, on my relationships and my private life. Um, it, you know, sometimes I recognize that in order for me to achieve what I want to achieve, I need to do X, Y, and Z. And so that means that other things are going to have to fall offside, but they never need to fall off the radar. They're all still there, but different objectives will get pushed to the fore at different times. Right. Where did you learn that term? I have no idea. I'm a magpie. When it, no, maybe, maybe when it comes to these, I, I collect these concepts. Like they're just, I have a whole list in my files called the magpie, the magpie file. And it's just these little things. I don't know what they mean necessarily to me in my research and my ideas at any given point, but I think it's an interesting thing. It's like, that's where the Cobra effect came from. I had it in a, one of my magpie files. I was like, oh, that's an interesting thought. wonder what that means. wonder what I, I could do with that one day. Let, let's hold that list for a dinner conversation. When we oh, honey, I'll bring it. Yeah, I'll bring it. <laughs> Final question for you. Because you have been so eclectic in, in, in your career and exper- experiencing mm-hmm. different, not only geographical place, places, but intellectual places. Where do you think you will be if you weren't here? Oh, my God. Well, there's a place I fear I would be. 
<laughs> Maybe, you know, thank God for the road not taken. Um, where would I be if it wasn't here? You know, um, when I was in grad school, I was the vice president of my student body for student, uh, student affairs, or I can't remember what it was, some title. But the thing that I did is I essentially, I was, I was the, I, I called myself the social convener for all grad students at the University of Waterloo for those years. And I had this budget and essentially I was tasked with making sure the grad students were having a good time. And oh. we, we owned a bar and I had to hire staff and I had to work behind the bar sometimes. And I, I, I hired bands and I, that was being a bartender and running that, being that social convener. I would have tried to up that into a real job because that was just fun. There was never a night where I thought, oh, Oh, I have to go have a, yeah, I'm, I'm such an introvert. Yeah, no, I, I, I was so happy. That was, that's probably where I would have ended up. Fascinating. That's why I yeah. love asking this question because you get to learn things that you would. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Okay, Lara, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for sharing all those ideas. Uh, and I hope you also had a good time. Uh, Syra, this was the best way to spend 35, 40 minutes that I've had in ages. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And again, I, I listened to your podcast, both of them. Um, keep it up. It's, it's great stuff. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for the support. And to our audience, thank you for listening. And we'll connect again in the next episode. Have a great day. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.